We're having a mass migration that's been going on for seven or eight years, or maybe even longer from blue to red states. And what that is going to add up to is not yet clear. In this episode, we sit down with Epoch Times editor-at-large, Roger Simon. He's an award-winning novelist, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, and author of the new book, American Refugees, the untold story of the mass exodus from blue states to red states. They wanted an America that they either had grown up with or dreamed of. We also take a look at Roger's unique perspective on the Israel-Hamas war. They were offered many times a country. So it became clear to me that they didn't want a two-state solution. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Roger Simon, so good to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Great to be here again. You know, Roger, of course, I love uh, reading your column every day and, and on the Epoch Times, always something new and fascinating and beautifully written. And now you've put this into another book, American Refugees. I've Quite honestly, it was such a pleasure to read, okay? But what, let, let's start with here. What is happening in America right now? What is happening? Give me, give, me give me your succinct explanation here. Well, we're having a mass, it won't be succinct, but I'll try. It, it's, we're having a mass migration that's been going on, I think, for seven or eight years from, or maybe even longer from, from blue to red states. And what, what that is going to add up to is not yet clear, but one part of it is clear that if we want to save the republic, um, the one that um, was started by the founders, it will be by saving the red states because the blue states have predominantly lost it already. And it's hard to know whether they can be recaptured easily. But it, the red states are sort of teetering. And, and one of the things in my book, I think, is the description of where they are now, what happened to all the people that came there from California and New York and Illinois, uh, looking for maybe a nirvana of, of the past of America, looking for Norman Rockwell's America, and found, uh, it's a little bit woke here too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what that, the culture clash that uh, ensued from that, which is, I think, permeates the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually one of the most fascinating finds of the book, right? That the people that you call are the cavalry, I think, uh, you know, are arriving at these states expecting to be, they, they end up becoming sort of agents of cultural change in these red states themselves. Yes, you right? know, what, yeah. what we, here was, the, here was the, the basic, I would say, ignorance accident that occurs. And, and I was, my wife wasn't, all of us were, we did not realize exactly what red states were like before we moved there. That's not to say we hadn't visited. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was in the civil rights movement, so I visited South Carolina in 1966, thank you. So I, I've seen it, but that's, it's so different from living in a place. But you, and, were, you were living in L.A. Okay? Yeah, let's, I was. Let's, let's for, say for, it, right? For 40 years of, <laughs> right. in the Hollywood Hills, in the, I was in the bowels of Hollywood, so I was in an extreme uh, kind of leftist environment. Uh, but I expected something that doesn't really exist in anywhere anymore, and maybe it really never existed. <laughs> and so when we when we arrived, all of us, and it, uh, the book has a, I, I think you see a little epigraph uh, that uh, was uh, described for me by a man I use in the book as a guru that I call Rocky Top. Uh, he calls himself Rocky Top. Uh, I can't say who he is because I've been sworn to secrecy because he's someone who 
was heavily duty in politics here in D.C. and also uh, in, in Tennessee. And th so this man acted as my uh, subliminal guide, sort of my Don Juan for the book. But, but uh, I, I used an epigraph of, uh, to the book from a story he told me, which was uh, he had heard this in a place in rural Tennessee, which is quite different from Nashville, where I live. Uh, they were building a very fancy house for two years, and no one knew who it was. And finally, when the, it was finished, the woman of that new house came in and said, um, we're from California, but we want to tell you that we're not bringing our California values with us, if you're afraid of that. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that's gone on in that state right, all the time. My friend Glenn Reynolds, who uh, is known as the Instapundit, is a, big, a very well-known blog, uh, he and others originally, when all of this migration was beginning, uh, were going to set up a welcome wagon. And the welcome wagon was to explain to these people, you're in the South now, don't bring these California values with you, blah, 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 blah. And I, and I started to tell him, Glenn, it's the reverse. These people who did this are more constitutionalist than the people in Tennessee. And of course, that is a rank and despicable generalization. Generalizations suck, but it's true. <laughs> it's, it's true to the level that generalizations are true. And it, because they were, if you think about it logically, who in the world wants to get up and, and move 2,000 miles with their family and, re, and start all over again or start on a new job or do all kinds of things? I mean, I was privileged because I, I'm a writer and I carry my work, but most people don't. And the people who did that were people who had more – the big excuse was, oh, they were all doing it for the money because there's no taxes in Tennessee, there's no taxes in Texas, blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is that's, of course, true, but that's not the reason that they really did it. They really did it because they wanted something else. They wanted a, an America that they either had grown up with or dreamed of, and they didn't necessarily get it. And that created an interesting clash. And it was this, you know, kind of traditional view of Western culture, the sort of, uh, you know, I guess the... The dream of, of, of American culture, the dream of Western culture, the self-reliance, exactly. the meritocracy, yes. the faith in many cases. And you talk about yeah. that quite oh, a bit yes. in the book. I'm, yeah. As I, I talked to you earlier about this, that faith was not, if you live in California, in where I lived in California, California is really a couple of different states because it's like a country. Um, it, it, where I lived in California, most of the people, religion is definitely something in the far back door, unless they're joined of some kind of very strange cult or something like that the latest guru came up with. But other than that, they don't talk about it because they're all worried about their careers and their girlfriends and all the rest of the um, very material lives. And I was like that, more or less. I mean, I, I like to pretend to myself I was more serious than that. But I wasn't. And I went to this man's house, uh, you know, for a, a political gathering. They're trying to get some money for a guy who was uh, running for Congress. So I, I met these people. And the next day, it turned out I ran into the same guy in the gym. 
And a guy said to me, oh, it was great to see you. Welcome, welcome you to Nashville, blah, blah, blah. Very, very nice. What church are you joining? And I went, well, I'm Jewish. And then, so he did a beat and he went, hmm. <laughs> then he said, well, what synagogue are you joining? I, but I realized something right away, that the assumption was there in that part of the world that you did that. Whether, whether you were Christian or Jewish, you did it. American refugees, and, I, and the reason the title is there is because we really were, we are refugees within our own country and from very different cultures. And it took me several years before I became more comfortable with, with faith. But the chapter that, it's near the end of the book quite deliberately because there's nothing more important than faith. And that, well, I call the, top, the chapter steeples because if you go to a place like Tennessee, you're, you're struck, all of a sudden there's steeples all over them. What is this? I mean, if you're driving around California, yeah, you would see a church here and there. Yeah, you see a synagogue on Wilshire Boulevard. But most of the time, you're seeing sushi bars or you're seeing Korean restaurants or you're seeing taco stands or you're seeing farms but you're, or you're seeing people in flashy cars, but you're not seeing steeples. I mean, they are there and there are famous churches in, in Southern California and so forth. But... but it's not, it doesn't permeate your, the culture, and it doesn't permeate your mind. And I talk in the book because uh, not just with you and other people here at the um, Epoch Times, I became very interested in Falun Gong. Uh, I've always, I also was surrounded there by evangelical Christians who I began to respect a great deal. And... <laughs> Uh, and then I also became more interested, and I always have been a little bit interested in the Chabad movement of Judaism. So I ended up, and toward the end of the book, if you read the book, you'll see that I'm a very confused man who has interests in all of those things. I happen to think that's not bad. I happen to think they all, if you read carefully and know what you're talking about, have a lot to do with each other. But uh, I have more evangelical friends now than anything else in, in Nashville. Um, after they got to know me well, they would come up and say, um, Roger, what is it with the Jews? They don't like Israel. <laughs> and I'd say, I, I, had, I would have a million answers to that because uh, there are a million answers. It, it is a world in which faith had tremendous significance. And the thing I liked most about the South when I got there is everybody was very nice. And I started to think it was a trick. That <laughs> you know that it didn't go on for that long. But I didn't think it was a trick. I was like, why is everybody being so nice? What is it? Because I had grown up in New York and lived most of my life in Los Angeles. You know, this is the kind of place where if you're at the supermarket. And everybody said, oh, you're just in from, you just moved here. You're wonderful. Come. How long? Where'd you come from? All that kind of stuff. As if, hey, you don't even know me. Right. Uh, and that's a, a there, remarkable There's more part. community, right? I mean, oh, that's what totally you're talking about. Oh, more community. Yeah. Except that the, the, the dark side, and that you have to face right away, is that in all these red states, I think you can almost say all, there's a war going on between 
the people of the state and the people who run the states and who are uh, in the cities. They are working from those cities outward to change these red states into being mini Californias. Well, I want to I want to talk about that a bit more in a moment. But uh, before we go there, you mentioned you know <laughs> you said people ask you what about these Jews that don't like Israel? Okay. Yeah. We've just had a very kind of clarifying moment with this Hamas invasion of Israel, you know, unprecedented number of death, uh, number of deaths in very short time uh, of Israelis. Do you think some of the people who, quote unquote, don't like Israel are, are thinking differently now? If they're not, God help us. Because I can't imagine anything more clarifying than what went on. If that doesn't affect people, I don't know what will. But what, what makes it different in your mind? I, I mean, I, like, you know, oh, right now what yeah, makes it absolutely. Oh, the extremity of the actions. I mean, they, these were almost Holocaust-type actions, you know, lot, you know, infanticides and things like that are, are just so horrifying to the human mind that you realize, you hope you realize, you hope people will go home how can they stand it? It's a terrifying moment in a lot of ways because you want to know that most people are going to recoil as this is beyond humanity. I mean, animals kill each other, but they kill each other to live. They, you know, they, they need food. This is people who, who did it in a one-time manner. You're Jewish, I kill you. Bah. And, it, and then laugh about it or rape them or whatever. As someone was telling me on the phone the other day, that's an insult to animals. Hmm. Because animals <laughs> have a reason to kill. These people had no reason to kill. Right. Well, you know, from, from the far left, which, you know, you yourself once hailed from, um, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, this is justified because of the Ter you know, terrifying and terrible Israeli policy over God knows how many years. Like, how do you respond to that? We, and, I'm, and the reason I'm asking about this is, you know, you have a very wide breadth of, of, of experience of both around political ideologies and people as, as, we're, as we're discussing here. Well, I've been wrestling this for a long time. And um, I, I will have to go back to the days of the 67 war when Israel defeated these countries all at once and, and, and enlarged, I was one of those who in those days felt that, well, land for peace was the way to do this. And then along came the Oslo Accords. I was so moved and so happy that there was going to be land for peace. And I think Bill Clinton Someone to whom I, I thought was okay then, now have less good feelings about. But you could see he was very excited to have done this and that they, everybody wanted to believe that Yasser Arafat was for real. But Yasser Arafat was not for real. He did not want land for peace. He was just stalling for time and getting money. And then it turned out that he was followed by this man Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, who took over the Palestinian Authority. And they, too, don't really want land for peace. They were offered many times a country. 
at least five or six times. And in the case of Ehud Olmort, who is the uh, Israeli prime minister and a, a real peacenik, practically a hippie, uh, they, they refused him. So it became clear to me that they didn't want a two-state solution. So then you have Hamas. Someone's admitted from that. Uh, they also said, and I was in Paris one time and heard this live, and wanted to run and hide, they said, uh, Hamas, Hamas, Jews to the gas. Well, <laughs> uh, that is not a two-state solution or any kind of comedy. So I, I, the people who are saying that now, I don't think, he, I just gave a quick praise of that history, very quick. Those people don't know any of it. The horrible part and the difficult part is I don't think they want to hear it. So, so let me jump in here, okay? So one Please. of the themes, you know, one of the reasons why uh, the red state people that are moving, the refugees moving from the blue states, is that a lot of the blue states are kind of, I guess, getting rid of history, I think it would be the right way of saying it. I mean, history is going to be what we say it is because we want to, that'll help us chart the future, right? And, I mean, that's very glib. I, I, it's, not, it's not exactly that. It's something like that. Now, yeah. and this, what you were just saying strikes me in a similar way, right? Because it's, it, if you don't, it's, it's of course, critical to understand the, the, the reality of how things got to this point today. Hamas's intent, for example, very transparent, consistent, and very <laughs> deliberate intent for, for its entire existence, right? Exactly. Let, let's come back to America, right? And this bit, the, the, the effect of getting rid of history or creating, you know, manufacturing new history like the 1619 Project, you know, to, to yeah. just kind of to justify the ideological you know, persuasion you particularly have. A lot of, a lot of people seem to, that, that would be one of these things that, that, that people yes. are running from, yeah. right? That is one of the things they're running from. But here's an ironic point on that, is that every few days, I play tennis a lot for my health and because I love it. And on the route from my house to the tennis, which is about 10 minutes, I drive down Robert E. Lee Drive. Uh, and when my wife and I first moved there, we said, that's amazing. They haven't, turned, they haven't changed the name. It's still, uh, it's still Robert E. Lee Drive. And there's actually right next to it is Confederate Drive. Anyway, it's not a particularly lavish neighborhood, Robert E. Lee Drive. It's not Old South where you, see, where you could see some, you know, antebellum mansions. It's kind of middle classy. And so... And, you know, one of the things I write about a lot in American refugees is our culture of, of yard signs in politics. And in that particular street, always Democratic yard signs for ultra-liberal candidates. <laughs> but they still don't take Robert E. Lee away. Relating to what you're saying, they don't do that so much down south. What you have all over the place in Tennessee are plaques of what happens, what happened at a certain place. And uh, most of them are, this was a Civil War battlefield, that was a Civil War, everything was a Civil War battlefield. They, they just mark it. And that's probably what should have done with, um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt in front of the, Metro, the Natural History Magazine, Museum in New York or, or the Jefferson 
Thomas Jefferson in the city hall. I line. thought this was such a great observation you made, you know, because you kind of, you go in the book, you kind of struggle through this question, but ultimately, you know, why not have this here with an explanation of what yeah. the meaning is? Like this yeah. is the, this is the, you know. I think George Santayana in his famous cliche about those who don't remember the past or condemned to repeat it and all that, he would probably approve of that because that's really telling you something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Jefferson's a fantastic character. He's obviously a great genius. I mean, look at the buildings of the University of Virginia and all that. Uh, not too many people have that many skills. And uh, yet he was a slaveholder. I, I, he undoubtedly wrestled with it, uh, maybe more than we know. And... Uh, you know, they all, they all did. Washington did. They all wrestled with it. And it's, it's why throw that information away? I, you know, the slavery has been as old as civilization, so it's nothing. They, it's treated in our country like we invented slavery, which is kind of a funny idea. Right. They missed reading Exodus, I guess. Another issue that you mentioned, which, again, I guess, you know, I can't help but think about, um, in the context of everything we talked about is civil war. Okay, we don't, I don't sit around thinking about civil war very seriously, right? But it seems like you and some people that you're talking to in this book are thinking about it seriously, and I found that very yes, concerning. Yes, no, I had a quite, I had a number of discussions with a man I describe as Rocky Top in that, uh, because both of us fear it a lot. I don't know if it is merely because of living where the Civil War is right around you all the time with all those plaques. And so I'm looking at it every day, almost. And I, I, I try to understand what's happening in this country and how extreme it's become. Because I am old enough to remember the 60s and 70s very well. I was a student agitator of the time, of a certain sort. and. Uh, people, because I'm older, ask me, well, is, it, is this worse than the 60s or is it better than the 60s? <laughs> I say, I tell them it's worse. I think the social fabric is more driven apart. Now, I may be looking at the past with rose-colored glasses, quote-unquote, but I don't think so. I, I think that most of us who were protesting the Vietnam War or involved in the civil rights movement as I was are... I always thought it would be okay and we're making things better. I don't think people have that same feeling now. There's a feeling that the center may not hold. And I hate to say that. Well, you know, one of the things we're, gonna, we're trying to do here, right, at Epoch, for example, is to facilitate some conversations, for example, with lawmakers or prominent people on very, with very, very different political persuasions, but around an issue they can agree on, where there can be some discussion, That's a good thought. you know, as a starting point. That's very much similar to an experience I had when we, starting PJ Media many, many years ago now, 04. The, our original intention was to do just that. And, but having been a professional writer all my life, I, I said, we're going to pay the writers. We were going to hire writers on both sides to argue issues. And the, the writers on the left were demanding more money. 
not the writers on the right. Now, the reason for this is that uh, in much the way that on Fox or Newsmax or something like that, the um, left-wing contributor has negotiating power, they, they had the same thing with, with us, and we, we said no. And then the whole thing, that whole idea fell apart. So all I'm saying is I wish you luck. <laughs> but I think yeah. you'll have more luck because you're more established. Well, we're, I, I mean, we have to try. You know, there's just places where there's no discussion. And then maybe, but I think if we can have some discussion on the few things we do agree on, even when we were very suspicious of the person, maybe we can shift things a bit, at least in the right direction. I, I am concerned that, you know, the, the lack of ability to see a person, I mean, we're, this is, we, we were talking about Israel moments ago. When you see another person is somehow less than human or just, you know, beyond the pales. You hear these uh, uh, terms being thrown around, Nazi, whatever, right, Hitler, blah, blah. So the, the, what that really means is I don't need to talk to you. You're beyond the pale. There's no, there's no point in discussing. You're, but that also means that I can do things to you that I wouldn't do to a, to a human can, being that I respect, yes. right? And that's, so that, that's, to so me, the dangerous direction. A hundred percent dehumanization. I've seen that. So this, in American refugees... In a way, having all these people exit um, blue states that are actually the sort of, you know, let's say the, the, the strong holders of the constitutional values and strong faith and things like that, just, they don't want that anymore. Are you concerned that this is creating, you know, greater bubbles and maybe fostering that, that, that yes. civil war scenario? Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes. I have to admit it because I'm part of it. I... I uh, I, I mentioned it in the book, as you know, I mentioned that issue, uh, and speaking personally, it had gotten untenable for me to live where I was living. I couldn't, and my family, I mean, because uh, much like Tucker Carlson, I had warnings. I had in my mailbox uh, scrawled writings, we know where you live. So... You, you think, and also, I think moving is not a bad thing in general. There's much to be gained by new horizons. And also, one of the things I discovered in, while I was writing the book was that there are many, many more people who think about it than do it. I, I had a lot of phone call conversations with friends in New York and L.A. and other places. So what's it like? Yeah, yeah. They would say, what's it like? And this went on for a couple of years. I mean, it wasn't like, because they, they would say, well, and the, you know, I went first, well, is it better live in Franklin or Nashville? <laughs> They're really getting into specifics. And what's the school like in this place and all the rest of the things? And you know after a while they're never going to leave. Because there's a certain mentality and a certain kind of person that moves on and another kind of doesn't. And uh, that's a, a kind of sub-theme of this book. But uh, it, I think we can look at it, the whole refugee thing, in a more optimistic way. Uh, I think the internal refugee thing is fairly optimistic. But, but the refugee thing of the people that come to this country and have, you know, come in not illegally, not members of Hamas or whatever coming across the border, but the kind of people that built this country were people willing to leave. They were people who sought a better life psychologically. Well, and what's really interesting is, at least early on, I think a lot of them were actually ideological or religious 
refugees, not not people doing it for finance, for basically a be, you know the quote unquote better life from the perspective of money. Uh, and so forth. Yeah, of, yes, and, it, and, it, and I, something I've discovered over the last years is that it is actually fundamentally different. The people who have the motivation, I need the I need freedom, I need fa I need to have, be able to practice my faith, and that's the re that, that's the reason I'm moving, I'm escaping. Versus, I'm just looking for a better life. Yep. It's just very, very different groups of people. Yes, and, that, uh, and, yeah. and, the, and my contention in the book is that there are a good percentage of the people that came uh, to these states in the South now are, are people who are looking for more than just, more than just a, a, an easier life for themselves, with no yeah. taxes. Yeah, and, you, yeah, even though, like you said, the, the money might be a factor. Yeah, 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 of course it is. You know, who wants is. to pay taxes? Right. No one does. Right. I mean, uh, Jeff Bezos, as we know, doesn't want to pay taxes. What is the most, uh, what is the most shocking thing you discovered on, in your, in your adventures? And by the way, I'll just mention the book to me as I was reading it, it, remind, it makes me think of a kind of an almanac. Right. Right. You, of you sorts of our times, you know, uh, it's very, it's, it's very interesting that way. It just occurred to me. I was thinking, what is an almanac anyway? Yeah. But, but yes. You know, I, I think shocking is a, is a big word for it. I think, in, uh, I think what I, I, I had is more of a growing up, which means a certain amount of disillusionment, a certain amount of maturity. And then out of that, with faith, more happiness. You know, Roger, um, I, 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 wanted, I think we're going to need to finish up shortly. You're right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write myself into the story a bit here. You, part of the almanac, so to speak, right. is, is this adventure that we actually shared together in Nashville, organizing uh, you know, the primary debate for one of the uh, Tennessee districts, yes, right? which, which I the winner of our debate. The, I hope you enjoyed the account of it. I, I, I did, <laughs> and, and, it was, and it was very interesting because it speaks to a, a number of the things that, that we've just been talking about. Um, but, but one thing that struck me, because it was like, you know, getting the play-by-play -play from, from the outside. <laughs> I don't usually get to see that. Is I, think we, I think we organized something pretty unique in the debate so, you know, like I've not, I've not heard. We we just kind of made it. I think it was very successful, and hasn't been replicated since. But I don't think it's been done before. Uh, I think right? it's one. I would have to put that down there as a treasured experience, and I hope you share that. No, absolutely, I mean, it, it's a treasured experience because, and and you learn from treasured experiences that if you put special effort into a unique idea and and just do it, don't be afraid to do it. Just do it, and uh, you know, I think. Although no, we our dream was that it would take off and all around the country people would do this kind of debate instead of the nonsense that we all watch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but and guess what? It didn't happen. Yeah. On the other hand, it didn't happen, mm -hmm. and a lot of people saw it. And I have never said, met anyone who was there or watched it on on uh, Epoch TV or NTD that told me they didn't find it very interesting. Everyone said it was. Mm -hmm. Now, that means that it's implanted in brains. So, uh, so maybe the little acorn will grow. We'll see. Well, Roger, a, a final thought as we finish? I wrote this book in part as a kind of um, layman's guidebook to anybody considering moving. Uh, not in a way that shows you that there are pluses and minuses. Right, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, but in the end, I think it's good. 
Well, Roger Simon, it's mm -hmm. such a pleasure to have had you on again. Well, great. I hope we'll do it again. I hope we'll write another book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for joining Roger Simon and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.